You ready? Is my picture up here? Yeah, so this is the cover of uh, U2's 2009 record, No Line on the Horizon. Uh, the artwork, I can't pronounce the actual uh, photographer's name that took this picture that they used for the album, but U2 struck a deal with him that they could put it on their album, but they couldn't put any words on it. So there's no, this is it. This is what comes on the album. And the reason for that is because of what it's supposed to do to your vision. If you put words on there, it kind of levels out the horizon a little bit. You can kind of see things. But uh, the, the, the premise is life is pretty difficult when there's no uh, line to see, no horizon line. And this actually reminds me of when I was in high school, uh, my friend Dale and I, we became friends in elementary school. He moved from Savannah in the fifth grade up to Atlanta, and so we became friends because I had just changed schools at the same time, so we kind of just met as two exile outsiders in a new school. And, but he grew up in Savannah. They kept all their homes in Savannah. I used plural there because it was true. Uh, they had a home on Tybee Island. That's where they lived. Uh, that's where he went to school, elementary school up through fourth grade. And then they had a home on Victory Drive. If you know Savannah pretty well, Victory Drive is pretty famous. A lot of haunted houses there, like legit. Um, <laughs> the Neighborhood Association gets together once a week and talks about how forks flew off the table. It's a pretty cool street. But, um, but anyway, his grandfather was a pretty known man down there before he passed away, but he had a lot of sailboats. And uh, we would take trips down there on the weekends and just stay on his grandfather's sailboat. So we would just crash there. The cool thing was it was at the Yacht Club, and on Saturdays at the Yacht Club, they just ran these, like, small regattas. And uh, we would just farm ourselves out to a crew. If you can do something, you can get on a crew. You know, it's like I can pull ropes. For me, I can throw up. Uh, <laughs> but I did know how to sail a little bit. Dale taught me some things, and so we raced sailboats off and on, uh, last few years of high school, or at least uh, tried. And this one morning we got up, and he's like, there's a cool regatta today. It's from Savannah to uh, Harbortown, Hilton Head. So it went eight miles out into sea, and then it made a left, and then it made its way to Hilton Head, and then you finished there. But it was an overcast day like this, and I was like, let's do it. We got on this big boat. There was like eight of us on the crew. And as soon as the harbor of Savannah disappeared, you can't see anything. And I started to get sick. I don't know if you've ever been seasick. Anybody ever been seasick? You can't fix it. Once it starts, it's like, that's it. It's like throw up. There's like no holding that down. And uh, so anyway, I started to get sick. I started to get worried. So I just started to work harder, just trying to take my mind off of it. And then eventually, I'm laying over the back of the boat. I threw up some stuff that I had for breakfast. Sorry. Welcome. And, uh, <laughs> but once all that's gone, you're just dry heaving, which is awesome. That's really fun. And so the race took about eight to ten hours. And so I was doing this the whole time. The crew started giving me nicknames. Uh, they pushed me downstairs. Uh, I came back up just to get some air. That didn't make a bit of difference. And for essentially seven hours, I just sat there and dry heaved. And it was, I was so sick. I was so sick. But then what was amazing was I remember uh, in my stupor, I remember the captain or whatever, whatever his name was, said, hey, uh, he called me Buick. That's what his name, that's the nickname he gave me. It's some stupid baby boomer name for someone who's throwing up. Uh, so he was like, hey, Buick, rookie. Uh, and he pointed, he pointed, and I, I looked, and you could see Hilton Head, like it was coming through the horizon. 
And it was, a, it was almost like a miracle. You just feel better because you see, like everything's starting to level out. You know what I'm saying? Like your, your sight line gets fixed. You see the finish line. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just throw up on land now. But, <laughs> but I remember like I started to feel better. And I feel, this is funny because the last 40 minutes, I was like an amazing crew member. I'm pulling ropes. I'm like folding sails and whatever. But we get to, we land at Harbor Town. And I remember laying on the 18th green of the Harbortown golf course, just wanting to die, but yet feeling like I might live. I might live just laying there. So that's my story about Horizons. But here's the thing. This, <laughs> this is what you came for. He's telling the Horizon story today. Um, here's the thing about, and we're just, and we're thinking about life. When there's no horizon, there is often very little to no hope. There's no future. And if I'm just equating this or connecting this to the sailing story, all you feel is a sense of drift and sickness and a sense that time has slowed down because you're not going anywhere because you can't even see where you're going. So I don't know if you've ever felt like that, but life can definitely get like that, can it? All of us in this room have seasons of life when we're all thinking about just getting through the week we're in. Is there an amen in the room for that? Or even the day that you're in, just the day-to-day just some examples. All of us get buried underneath the weight of bills. Anybody? Just me? Cool. All right. <laughs> Raising kids. Anybody? Parent? That wasn't as easy as it looked, did it? <laughs> right? Uh, working a job you feel stuck in. Any raising the roof there? Nobody? Anger and bitterness that won't go away. Anxiety, depression, spending another light, a night alone a marriage that needs repair, fear, or the weight of relationships that need care and mending. All of us have been in seasons where there just doesn't feel like there's a horizon. It feels like we're drifting. When we're sitting underneath the weight of all those things, it's really hard for us to believe that we'll ever make it to shore. Because when there is no visible horizon, there's no future, there's no hope, it's just drift and fear. And we've taken a few Sundays to reflect uh, on God's desire to instill within each of us a very real sense of hope. And so the theme of this series is hope. And I'm not talking about the hope, the kind of hope that just hopes things will work out. Hope that things will just work themselves out, like this kind of passive hope. It's not that kind of hope. We're talking about a kind of hope that actually pulls us through the valleys we're in precisely because that kind of hope knows that things do work out. And that God has a future for us. And whatever the surroundings, whatever the, the landscape of our lives might look like, despite whatever our present may look like, whatever's essentially staring us down at the moment, that we're still going somewhere. And I would say in a broader sense that creation is still going somewhere. And so I want to just reflect on that some more. Jeff kicked the series off last week. Uh, did an amazing job. He asked if I was going to correct anything that he said last week today, and the answer is no, because uh, he killed it. He made, a good, he made a good start. They don't think so, Jeff, so it's all right. It's all, right. It's all, right. all right, let me read our main text, and then I'm going to put some things on the screen for you. Actually, Kayla's going to do it because we walked away from the remote. It never works. All right, uh, this comes from Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 5. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, these words come from a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Rome, and he wrote this letter during the first century of the common era. Now, it's a letter filled with all these very profound announcements about God's love for the world, what God's doing in the world. All of this is connected, of course, to Christ's work, God's work through Jesus, uh, where God is taking the world, and so on. Now, in the original text, there, there are no chapter and verse numbers. I don't know if you knew that, but the writers of the Bible didn't go, now I'm in chapter 7. What is verse 1 going to say? They didn't do that. They just wrote it. But there are, uh, that's a pretty new addition for us, but there are noticeable sections and movements in the letter uh, to the Roman church. And chapter 5, as we call it, is essentially the second major section. of the, It's a turning point. The letter turns here. And everything that's been happening before chapter 5 Paul has been focusing on, just in general sense here, salvation. God's saving, redemptive work in the world through Christ, etc. And chapter 5 turns a corner and starts on this kind of motif of, Paul's basically saying, because of all that, we can now live like this. So because of that, we can now begin to live our lives like this. And part of the chapter, and this, don't, don't fall asleep on me here because this is actually very interesting, but you can't fall asleep if you want. Part of the chapter compares later on, if you just get down a few verses, Paul starts to compare Jesus to Adam, as in Adam and Eve. Now, for Paul, history is pictured in the lives of these two men, Adam and Jesus. Now, the Hebrew word Adam just means humanity. It's not a name. It's a sort of a thing. It's this mankind, humankind, humanity. And so Adam is a picture, in in Paul's sense here, of, of a failed humanity, because if you know the story of Adam and Eve, it didn't work out. I mean, the Bible starts off with a bang, literally, and let there be light. And then uh, the joke is lost. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. Uh, okay. Thank you. Uh, it starts off with a bang. And then, it's okay, you don't have to laugh now. But then by chapter 3, it's just like, oh, everything's terrible. Like, it's just this escalating, like, oh, it's beautiful, and all of God's creation, and then Adam and his partner just mess it up, right? This is the storyline. And so Adam is this picture of a kind of failed attempt at being fully human, a humanity that, in the biblical sense, in the Genesis story, gambled its autonomy against God's will. Now, that's not something that has changed for us. We still continue to gamble with God's will and our autonomy against that. And it results in this storyline of wandering and exile that fills the front of our Bibles. So the first Adam failed in his calling to partner with God in faith and in life, caring for creation and for others. And he gave into lesser things, this temptation of the immediate. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And the tradition of Adam in the Christian movement is that he is not a great model for life. So Paul then compares Jesus to Adam. 
Jesus being kind of a second Adam, this time a successful one in his calling and purpose. He followed God's plan all the way to the end, and in Christ we see this model for the true humanity, the model for living in God's world, correctly, rightly, and then, of course, in partnership with God. And at the heart of this comparison, Paul wants to point out that a reversal has taken place. A reversal has taken place in Christ, that this section of the letter is deeply rooted in the belief and the announcement that God has reconciled all things to himself through Jesus, past tense. It's already been done. That through Christ, all things have been reconciled to Jesus or to him through Jesus. That in and through the life and the teachings and the actions and the death and the resurrection of Christ, God was and is continuing to make all things new. And with that, there are these two overbearing, unavoidable convictions. Number one is that God has obviously never given up on the world. That should be an internal sort of boost for us, that God does not give up. He has not given up on the world. But number two, we can rest in knowing that we are at peace with God. Say the word peace. Peace with God. This is, in fact, how the whole section of the letter begins. If you'll notice, it says, therefore, we have been justified by faith. We have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word for peace here is the word irene. And it's not this kind of like, peace, man. It's actually this word that describes reprieve from the impact of war and violence. It's that space after great trauma where healing begins. Now, our text for today, I just want to look at a couple things. We'll follow along here as I read it. Paul says and our part of the passage this morning, not only that, that we have peace with God, but we rejoice in our what? That's where we're just like, Paul, that's ridiculous. We rejoice in our sufferings. No, we don't. No, we don't. We tweet about them. We, we drink about them. We get with our friends and say, can you believe about them? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So let's talk about this for a moment. Now, the writings of the Bible have a lot of these kind of riffs, these production line sequence verses where one thing leads to another. Suffering to endurance, endurance to character, character to hope. And the last thing, of course, is the main thing in these lists, and in this case, it is hope, but it begins with sufferings. Because when we're suffering... What we want the most is hope. So it's a nice opposite, but Paul outlines this kind of journey towards that. So I want us to reflect on that for a moment. Now, I like this because it actually acknowledges that there's suffering in our lives. And in this case, there, there are two particular ways that Paul's talking about this. The first is simply this, that there are sufferings that come with being a disciple. It's easy to read the Scriptures and just generalize them about everyday life, like it's a Reader's Digest, Aesop Fable, Tony Robbins, whatever you want to fill in the blank, Oprah, I don't know. But Paul is talking very specifically about there are sufferings that come with being a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus. And because there are sufferings that come with this faith that we sing about, uh, it's important for us to remember this. And at the intersection of our faith and culture, Jesus is often a problem. 
Now, we've dressed Jesus up to look like whatever we want him to look like. For some, he looks like an East Atlanta resident. For some, he looks like a Buckhead resident. For some, he looks like a Midtown resident. For some, he's this. For some, he's that. We just sort of fashion him into whatever we're most comfortable with and say, see, Jesus, like he's with us. With us does not mean like us. Are you with me on that? God is always with us, but it does not mean he is like us. Please remember that. And in fact, if we stare at the teachings and the life of Jesus long enough, he will at times, maybe more times than not, be a problem for us. The ways of Jesus are not always in line with culture and upstream in so many ways. And if we are convinced that we can trust Jesus to guide and direct our living, then we are to be very aware that we will at times experience suffering. Now, if we do widen the lens out a bit, because this is also a universal truth, we recognize that suffering is also just a normal part of life, whether you follow God or not. It's just a normal part of life. There will be trouble and trial for us, and none of us has the corner market on suffering avoidance. We said this a couple of weeks ago. Every, everybody suffers. We all have to walk through those seasons. Now, Paul shows us how faithfulness during and in and through suffering works. The first thing he says is that suffering produces what? Endurance. Endurance. What does this mean? I just have some quick definitions here. If we remain faithful during suffering, we grow in our endurance during suffering when the next one comes. But if you're just looking for what this means, it's the ability to stay sober in times of trouble and to remain very present, to remain very focused on what is happening to you and to stay sober in those moments. I like to say it this way, just let it hit you. Life has to hit us sometimes. And the more it hits us, the more we experience this endurance that builds over time. And then endurance leads to or produces what? What does he say next? Character. And the character he is talking about is, should be pretty obvious, but this is the building and the shaping of a Jesus-shaped life, a Jesus-animated life that my character continues to form and to shape into the person of Jesus. And the result of faithfulness through suffering is this hope. Now, the word for hope here is very future-focused. It's not, again, I hope things work out. Hope you're well. It's my favorite email opener. Hope you're well. Hope you're well. Hope things are going well. Hope that kid is growing I hope, I hope, I hope. It's not that kind of hope. It's a very future-focused hope. And the future uh, it is focused on here is a very specific future when God will, in the end, renew all things. Now, for Paul, sufferings are the contractions of a new age that's coming. Notice what he says in his other, one of his other letters here, in the Corinthian letter, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. Paul uses suffering often in his writings 
to talk about how they remind us that something better is coming. Hope in the midst of suffering, and I want you to listen to this and remember this, but hope in the midst of suffering is the ability to see the future. Hope in the midst of suffering is the ability to see the future. Panic in the midst of suffering. Freaking out in the midst of suffering. Blaming in the midst of suffering. Destroying relationships in the midst of suffering is only seeing the present. It's self-preservation. But hope in the midst of suffering is the ability to see the future. What the next series we're going to do, uh, I, have these, like, I have this list of like, how do you know if you're growing in your faith? Because that's always a question people ask. And I have this list that I want to talk through. Like, here's another way you can know you're growing. Here's another way you can know you're growing. And I don't know if it's week one or two, but there's a week in the upcoming series where one of the ways you can know that you're growing in your faith is that the drama in your life drops. Are you, are you ready for that one? That the drama in your life drops. Hope in the midst of suffering is the ability to see the future. So some questions before we close. How difficult is that for you? When you are in the throes of life, does hope come easy or is it difficult for you? Do you have a hard time seeing beyond the present suffering you're going through? I would say if we're all honest, then yes. It's very difficult. It's kind of why community is important. Because not everybody in your small group or in this room this morning is going through the exact same thing at the same time. If that's the case, then we've got ourselves a serious cult situation. But (laughs) all of us are in seasons of in and out of difficulties. Are you with me on that? So it's nice to have people around us that can say, oh yeah, I just got through that. You'll make it. Sometimes we see the future through the experiences of other people. Just having those people in your life, right? It's always good to have those people that are way ahead of you so that they can point at the things you're going through. It's nice to have people who already have scars in their life from the wounds that you're just now nursing, the very same things that you're going through, so that they can say, oh, no, no, the future is okay. Because when life takes a hit, when comfort and confidence and security shift off balance, we worry that God has fallen asleep at the wheel, or he got distracted, or worse, that he's done with us. But Paul is trying to remind us in this small section of his letter that we have a future, and it's a good future, and that Paul is trying to pick us up off the ground and to get us walking again and walking towards that good future. I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, a little section on hope. He says, aim at heaven, and you get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. That's a powerful little riff And Lewis is both expressing a risk and also announcing a promise. The risk is obvious. Focus all of your attention on the present and you risk losing sight of the future. That's what he's saying. The promise is this. Keep the future in view and it will or should inform and shape how you deal with the present. Does that make sense? It's a risk but it's also a promise. Keep the future in view and it will inform and shape how we deal with the present. Uh, Let me close with this story here. Anybody know this movie? Who doesn't know this movie? (laughs) 
get out. <laughs> As a side note, I do recommend, uh, you can just search this on YouTube, but probably the most brilliant three minutes in television in the last five years is the, uh, on the Big Bang Theory, they, they figure out Back to the Future. So amazing, so amazing. They even fixed the grammar. It's something like, will have, had, had. Oh, it's just amazing. It's amazing. Because um, time travel is tricky, man. It's like so tricky. Um, but I, I, love this, I love this movie because it's, uh, well, I was a teenager when it came out. So it was like, that was it. It was that or Top Gun. And um, two very different movies. But this whole scene is my favorite because I'm into music, but... Uh, do you know this scene? He's at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance with his mom, which is weird. Uh, there's a little bit of weird in the movie, too. You're like, let's not talk about that. But, uh, but he goes in there, and the band, you know, the, the, the band leader injures his hand, who happens to be Chuck Berry's cousin, Marvin Berry. If you don't know who that is, then forget it. But uh, So Marvin Berry's off stage, and uh, Marty picks up the guitar because he can totally play. And he turns around to the band, it's one of my favorite lines. He's like, blues riff and B, watch me for the changes, right? And they have no idea what he's going to play because it's like 1955. And so uh, he starts playing Johnny B. Good by Chuck Berry, uh, which is a great song. And they just, they just jam, right? They just jam. And he goes into a solo and he kicks the amp over, which you don't do until the 70s. And, uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> he kicks the amp over and he's like, all across the floor, he's doing these like bends and like it's scream, the guitar screaming, and everybody's dancing at first. But at the end, they're all just staring at him like, "What are you doing? <laughs> like, what are you doing? What are you doing to our time and era? What are you doing?" And so, but he, there's this, there's two great lines. Marvin Berry's off stage, and he calls Chuck Berry, and he's like, "Hey, you know that new sound you're looking for?" And he holds the phone out. That's a great scene. And then, uh, but after he gets up off the ground, and everybody's just staring at like you're staring at me. He says, he gets on the microphone and he says, well, you guys probably aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it, right? So he says that, right? So it's a, it's a great scene. It's a great scene. But here's the whole thing about this scene, it, particularly this scene, all the way, all the way through the movie, it's like this, but particularly in this scene, and you're going to know the connection as soon as I say it, but the future of music showed up in the past. Are you with me on that? So the people, in the, the people at the dance that night, they saw and heard and experienced the future for a moment in time. Does that make sense? Now, let me back this up even further. The early Christians believed that the ending of the cosmic story came to visit them in the middle. Something of a spoiler in Jesus. Or you can say it this way, they thought these words, in Jesus, we have seen the future. That resurrection, that new creation, that healing, that forgiveness is seen in Christ. And the early Christians believed with conviction, and many to their deaths, that in Jesus, we have seen the future. That the future of the cosmos backed up into the middle of the story. But for a moment. And many people didn't get it. And Jesus, in a sense, is like, it's fine. You're not ready for that yet. But your kids are going to love it. But in Christ, we have seen 
the future. The job of the church, I don't know who said this, but it's a wonderful line. The job of the church is to remember the future. And we have seen the future in Christ. Amen? And so whatever suffering it is that you may be going through, you know the future. You've seen it. And I encourage you in that. I encourage all of us in that. Let me pray for you, and then Jeff will come up and get us ready for communion, which is a physical act of remembering the future. As we take the bread and the juice, remembering his death and his resurrection and the hope of his return, it's remembering and focusing on the future. Let me pray, and then Jeff will get us ready for communion. God, thank you for this day, and thank you for um, this time that we've had together this morning to sing and to to listen to stories about what you're doing in other countries, bringing renewal to places that are in desperate need. And God, we just pray that, uh, I pray for the people in this room that certainly there are a percentage that are in the midst of very difficult seasons. They can't see the horizon, that feel adrift, sick, afraid. But God, we pray that as we take just a few moments to remember the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, that it will act as a trailer for what's coming and that we can rest in the hope that we have seen the future and it is good. And it's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.